Going Linux episode 257, listener feedback. Welcome to the Going Linux podcast. I'm your host, Larry Bushy. And I'm your co-host, Bill. Whether you are new to Linux, upgrading from Windows to Linux, or just thinking about moving to Linux, this podcast will provide you with valuable information and advice that will help you in going Linux. We hope that you find this and all our episodes helpful in learning about Linux and its applications and using them to get things done. In today's episode, listener feedback. If you want to send us feedback, email us at goinglinux at gmail.com or send us a voicemail at one nine zero four four six eight seven eight eight nine. Hello, Larry. Hey, Bill. Welcome back to another fun-packed episode of okay. Going Linux. Before you ask, I'm still running uh, Sabion. Okay. Okay. Good. Okay. Good. Just just get that out of the way before you ask which All one right. I'm using. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> A little consistency never hurt. That's good. <laughs> All right. Let's just jump right into this because we've got a lot to cover. Yeah. Uh. Paul in North Texas asks us about the shell shock bug, and he writes, Larry and Bill, can you give Linux users some idea of the practical threat of the shell shock virus for Linux users? I only heard a very short story on NPR about it, and they said it is directed toward Unix and Linux OS. What have you guys heard about it? Thanks, Paul in North Texas. Well, Paul, uh, first of all, it's not a virus. It is a bug, uh, and there is a difference. Um, it, it's a bug in the Bash shell that lets someone, someone could write a virus based on that bug, but um, a, a virus or malware of some sort. It may not be a virus necessarily. And uh, so this is uh, something that is affecting anything that's Unix-based. So yes, Unix. Yes, Linux. Uh, BSD as well, and OS X on the Mac. Uh, so if you're using Windows, you're safe from this bug. <laughs> <laughs> Boy, that's a switch. Yeah, very much so. And the reason you're safe on Windows is because Windows does not use Bash, the Bash shell. Now, if you've got Sigwin or something like that on, on Windows that lets you run Bash commands, then probably you are vulnerable as well. So I shouldn't blanket say that if you run windows you're safe but if you run windows and nothing else you'll be uh, safe from this uh, bash bug uh, essentially the bug comes from how bash handles what are called environment variables so if you know how to take advantage of this vulnerability you can trick bash into executing a particular command any command you want uh, and that command could be something that you don't want it to be doing. The malicious command that you want to execute can be tucked inside of some text that's part of a specific bash command. And normally that uh, text should be ignored by bash, but it's not. And that's where the bug comes in. So it can direct a computer to download malware or wreak all kinds of other habits as well. And bash, of course, has been around since 1989. So it's in a lot of stuff, everything from routers to 
web servers to your home computer if you're running any sort of Unix on your home computer, including OS X. So it's something that we all need to be aware of. Uh, and we'll have articles in our show notes to information about this bash bug. Uh, they're calling it shell shock. And uh, essentially what you'll find in those um, in those articles is a little command that you can test. It is a command that exploits this bug. Uh, and if you're vulnerable, uh, it will print out the word vulnerable on the screen. If you're not vulnerable, the command will error out, of course, because it's not supposed to be something that does anything. <laughs> that um, works. Yeah, and so um, uh, normally we wouldn't recommend pasting commands into your terminal, <laughs> but uh, this particular one uh, allows you to check it out, and you can tell immediately whether you're vulnerable. Um, what I found is that as of today, and today is September 28th, we're recording this, uh, my Linux Mint 17 machine has been patched by the Linux Mint folks, and of course upstream to Ubuntu and upstream to Debian, they have patched Bash. Uh, of course, Linux Mint um, 17, whether it's Cinnamon or Mate version, doesn't matter. It's all uh, patched. My Zubuntu machine, which is running Zubuntu 12.04, uh, is vulnerable. Um, let's see, what else do I have? I have my Chromebook, the Chrome operating system. It's vulnerable. They haven't patched it. Uh, and... My work computer, OS X, vulnerable. So uh, the Apple folks haven't patched it. The Google folks haven't patched it. And I expected Ubuntu 12.04 because it's, you know, from 2012. <laughs> I didn't expect any security <laughs> updates there. But uh, I'm running it behind a firewall as I am my Chromebook. And my OS X machine is behind a firewall and has a VPN and all other stuff. So my vulnerable machines are not very likely to be vulnerable externally on this unless I take them out of the house and do something strange with them. But uh, that's not going to happen. And my day-to-day -day machine's not vulnerable because they've been patched. How about you, Bill? Okay. Uh, my Windows 8, of course, is not vulnerable. My Mac is vulnerable. Mm -hmm. Apple has not patched it. Sad face. Yeah. Uh, my Linux right now is is out of it's sitting on a hard drive on my desk, so it's definitely not vulnerable because it's not in a machine. <laughs> uh, but I really find it interesting that the free operating systems actually beat Google and Apple to patching the operating system. Yeah, yeah, and yeah, it's it's just a patch for for Bash is what it is. Well, so it's been around for such a long time, you kind of wonder why it hasn't been patched before. But uh, it's just interesting that, you know, you got Google engineers and Apple engineers, they, and they, you know, and they can't get a patch out in a timely manner. And this is something that's fairly important. And to give you an idea, the, some of the computer systems that are affected, you know, are, of course, OS X, BSD, Unix, and Linux. To give you an idea of how this will directly affect you, ATMs, routers, and servers that are used in the internet, uh, they're vulnerable if they're not patched. 
Right. I found a, li- a link to a government site that will uh, show you which operating systems have been patched, and it's in our show notes if you're interested. And, of course, when I went to look, you know, of course, Debian was and Red Hat was and uh, Ubuntu was, but it's just a very interesting, it's just very interesting to me that you have these for-profit companies that can't get their act together and want something like this. I mean, really? Come on, guys. Yeah, I... It takes some time for these guys to react, unfortunately, and um, they, it will be patched. And quite frankly, if you're running your computer behind a firewall, uh, you're you're pretty much safe from this thing, I would think, uh, because the exploit needs to have access to the Bash shell or to SSH. And unless you have something open to SSH... Uh, open on the internet, that is, without some sort of security, whether that's um, keys or whether that's even just a simple password, then um, uh, then you could be vulnerable there. And of course, the real risk is that you could go to a website that has something faked, you click on it, and you accidentally run something that will run a bash script that will infect your computer. So, you know, and since many, many things run bash scripts on a Linux computer, it's not uncommon to see a bash script running. Uh, it's the same as everything else, though. You need to be careful what you do on the Internet and make sure you don't click on any links that you don't know where they're taking you and make sure that uh, you're not opening attachments from strangers and all the other uh, advice that you're always given about safety on the Internet. It applies to Linux just as well as it applies to everything else. And I'm thinking, Bill, this may be, you know, the the second instance of uh, something that is out there in the wild uh, as as a commonplace thing now to have vulnerabilities in Linux. First there was Heartbleed, then there's Shellshock, and uh, uh, this one's big. This one's um, potentially yeah, affecting all uh, internet servers as well. So that's that's really uh, a bigger problem, I think. If you have a website. Uh, and uh, who doesn't these days with WordPress blogs and everything else? Check out your uh, provider, or if you're if you've got a hosting company or whatever, find out from them whether or not they have uh, patched Bash uh, on the going Linux website. We do not have SSH or even shell access enabled on our website, so um, that shouldn't be a problem for us. And uh, unless, with most web hosting companies, I think unless you request shell access, you, you don't get it by yeah, default. So I think it's worth a check, that's for sure. So I shouldn't go to that link from the Nigerian prince who says uh, he wants to give me a million dollars. No, that's always good advice, Bill. Okay, well, I just, you know, <laughs> I was just really excited. I guess I don't. Uh, Anyway, just be safe <laughs> yep. and uh, watch where you go on the internet. And uh, if there are updates, if you're running Linux and you haven't uh, applied your updates or hadn't checked for updates, please do so. Yep, absolutely. And as far as uh, virus protection on, on Linux, that's the next question that's going to come up. This isn't a virus. <laughs> this is a bug in Bash. <laughs> Uh, so virus scanning wouldn't have helped in this case. It's it's a bug. No. It's it's a it's an error in the way Bash was written, and who knows how long it's been in the code. 
Wow. Now, I just wonder, if you're in a terminal, how do they get root privileges? Uh, it's, uh, somebody coming in from outside, you mean? Yeah. I mean, if you say you're not even, you're using, you know, we all, we always recommend that you don't use your root account for your everyday account. Right. Um, now, Ubuntu and um, I think Linux Mint, they they do it a little differently. Sure. But uh, Sabion, for example, you create a root account and you create an, a, a less, uh, not a, just a regular user account. So say you're in your regular user account, how would someone use this exploit to uh, do the nefarious stuff that they say they can do? Right. Well, first of all, the um, the command, the, the bash exploit here, uh, doesn't require root access to run. It is just part of the bash command that can be run as a regular user. So, okay. yeah. So once you have executed the command, you don't need special privileges to do something. Now, the command, the, the nefarious command that, that the bad guy may have put into that command might require root access to do something, in which case it's going to prompt you for your username and password. Oh. So if you click on something, you're expecting it to run something, but it shouldn't be asking you for your username and password. Don't enter it. Think twice. Think about what's yeah. going on here. Um, similarly, the other way to get around this whole thing is to get you to execute this uh, this command that illustrates the bug as root at the beginning, and then it doesn't have to ask you the second time. But at one point or another, you you will need to enter in username and password credentials in order to run something as root. Uh, as I said, the problem is that um, this this exploit can do things without uh, asking for root permission. Now, it can't do anything that you can't do as a regular user, but think about it. You can delete all of your own files. You can do all kinds of things. You can add a printer. You can add a share. Uh, you can do lots of things without um, without entering in your credentials. Yeah, you're right. Uh, you can't destroy the system but you can destroy your own data and everything around your user in, in Linux. So make sure you have a good backup. <laughs> yeah, that too. Yeah. All right. Let's say we move on. I think we've just talked bashed to death. Yeah, <laughs> we've bashed that one to death. <laughs> anyway. Okay, our first email is from Paul. And Paul is a little bit concerned about pasting commands. <laughs> Very appropriate, Paul. Don't do it. Paul has a question and is in two parts. Let's deal with each part separately. He writes, Hello, Larry and Bill. I've asked questions before about solutions I've gotten from message forums with warnings from you and others to be very careful about blindly copying and pasting commands into the terminal. With that said, I have a two-part question. First, let me tell you the problem I've encountered with full drive encryption. That seems to be a theme, too. Yeah. On Peppermint 4, when I installed the Peppermint distro onto my computer, I was asked if I would like to encrypt the home folder. I selected yes, and everything works fine, except for one thing. Whenever I load the Peppermint Live CD or any other Linux boot CD or USB flash drive, I can't access my data. In the past, I don't seem to be able to communicate exactly what my problem is, so... 
to reiterate I'm only having trouble accessing the home folder when I boot into a live CD and try to access the data that's on the encrypted home folder of the hard drive. Well, yeah, that's kind of the reason that you encrypted it and you can't access it with a live CD. Yeah, that's exactly and, right. <laughs> that's, that's, that was the whole idea of when they said, would you like to encrypt it? It's to keep people from doing what exactly what you're trying to do. Yep, I agree with that, Bill. Um, yeah, uh, and we really did read Paul's email, uh, at least this part of his email, on the Computer America episode most recently, and we had a little discussion about that as well. And yeah, uh, you're you're out of luck unless uh, unless um, no, you're out of luck. <laughs> <laughs> okay, yeah, just don't don't sugarcoat it. Yeah, you're out of luck. You're out of but luck. But your data's safe. Yes, exactly. <laughs> unless you have those keys. You're, you're, you can't get into it. Yeah. So part two. Um, now to the issue of blind copying commands into a terminal. It has been suggested that I should try commands obtained from forums in a virtual environment. In my opinion, it's sometimes not possible to recreate the problem in a virtual environment. Uh, also, it has been suggested that I should read the entire list of solutions before trying a command in the terminal. Sometimes you may have only one suggestion. I decided to post my problem on the Peppermint forum. Here is the question followed by the one and only reply. Is it safe to enter the command I've been given? Uh, when I installed Peppermint 4, I selected Encrypt Home Folder. I thought it would be a simple matter of selecting Open as Root when I try to access the drive Peppermint is installed on from a live Peppermint CD, but I haven't had that experience. I have no trouble booting into my Peppermint install. It's just whenever I try to access it externally. Yeah. Okay. Uh, our response, Paul, is is always good. It's always a good idea to know something about the commands you are asked to run. That's common sense. Uh, research each command by running man, which is manual page, and then the command. So it would be man and then the command. And it comes up and it lists what that command will do. Right. Uh, Google the command you're asked to run. That's always a good idea because the Goog knows everything. <laughs> and the, the last one I would say is if you have, you know, don't feel quite right about running a command, if, research it. And don't run it until you're absolutely positive what it does. You know, don't don't be in a hurry if you have a problem and you say, well, I need to, you know, go ahead and research the problem and look at the commands and use your man pages because it's it's built into every Linux system, and that's what they're there for. Yep. And the way you run that man command is at a terminal, of course. Yes. To a new user, that's maybe not absolutely. Obvious. So, yeah, Paul, the the whole encryption thing that you're trying to solve here, I think you're out of luck. Uh, but as far as pasting commands in, good advice from Bill there. So, listen up. Yeah. And uh, by the way, just kind of uh, a funny thing. You're running the man page in Bash. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Our next email is from listener Rainy, who's having problems with a podcatcher. Hi, Larry and Bill. I have been enjoying your show for quite a while now. However, lately, I've noticed that the podcast feed on AntennaPod won't update anymore. After removing the feed, I tried to add it again. Every time I do this, AntennaPod is giving me an error and simply stops. 
This is the only program I have a problem with, since GPotter works fine and even on Zoom it updates. Do you think that this might have something to do with the XML? I have reached out to the creator of AntennaPod, but haven't heard back on anything yet. Out of about eight podcasts that I'm subscribed to with AntennaPod, only going Linux is misbehaving. Is there anything else I can try? Thank you for all the good work you do, Rainy. Well, Rainy, um, we've posted your question, not word for word, but we've posted the issue into our Google Plus uh, community, and we've received several responses to that. We'll include a link to that post in the show notes in case somebody's interested there. But the consensus seems to be that AntennaPod is the only podcatcher that seems to have this problem. And there's probably something in the going Linux podcast feed that is causing AntennaPod to freak out that maybe it doesn't know about. And the only thing that I can see that would be different between our feed and anyone else's is the use of chapters, which we added about 12 or 13 episodes ago. And uh, it's possible that that's causing the problem, uh, but without removing them and messing up the feed for everybody else, uh, we can't really test that out. But since it seems to be isolated to AntennaPod, uh, I would check with the AntennaPod people, uh, check back with them. You've already asked them about it. See if you do get a response and see if we can fix whatever's causing them to freak out. And uh, Rainy, there was another listener on the Google Plus forums that checked out AntennaPod and is seeing exactly the same thing on AntennaPod. And, of course, everybody uses something else. And AntennaPod yeah. is an application for the Android uh phones and tablets and so on for listening to podcasts so there are plenty of other alternatives out there i know you like antenna pod but if it's not working probably something <laughs> you need to switch from right <laughs> yeah and you know going linux misbehaving surely not no not never, us no <laughs> we never misbehave how could you think that yeah that's uh, linux outlaws yeah linux outlaws they says that we aim to misbehave yeah those are the guys <laughs> they're be they're misbehaving yep Okay, uh, our next email is from Angelo in North Carolina, who talks about screen readers. And as you remember, Bill, we've been uh, talking about screen readers and other uh, accessibility uh, on Linux topics. And we have an advanced episode coming up on that shortly. So this is, I guess, in response to our conversations there. Angelo writes, screen readers for Windows have been around for a while. You already know about JAWS, Job Access with Speech, is what the acronym means. There is an update fee. Uh, there are improvement releases every year, and the approximate cost for JAWS is $1,200. I am, yeah, I am currently using this on the job because it is the only reliable screen reader that works with our special web-based software. There is also Window Eyes. It has been around for as long as JAWS and was its chief competitor. The price is approximately $800. Ow. Wow. Yeah. The good news is a screen reader called NVDA, Non-Visual Desktop Access, is free. And I'm assuming this is also for Windows. The folks writing the screen reader have really made NVDA an outstanding free alternative for a population with an unemployment rate of 70%. It is just about as good as JAWS and gets better every day. There is also a screen reader called System Access. It is pretty good, cost approximately $400. 
A special note about Orca, though the speech is somewhat robotic, most blind folks use a robotic solution because of the quick response to the keyboard and cursor movement. The better voices tend to have a latency that slows down productivity. Interesting to know. Let us not forget TalkBack, the Android screen reader. It too has come a long way, and for iOS devices there is VoiceOver. I've been using uh, talking computers since the days of the Texas Instruments TI-994A, then moved up to CPM, then to MS-DOS and Windows. I currently use Vinix at home and plan to give Sonar a try. I do support Jonathan's work with a monthly PayPal recurring payment. He is doing a terrific job. Uh, I, like him, believe we must work to provide accessibility to all disabled people. You are the only mainstream podcast that I know of that have taken on this subject. Keep up the fine work. Maybe we'll catch Bill on the air someday. 73, Angelo, N2DYN. He's ac- uh, absolutely right. I do have a question about his email. Was Is it a four, is, uh, for JAWS, is it a $1,200 upgrade fee every year? I don't think so. Um, I think oh. that's the initial cost for JAWS. In some of the comments that I made in our introductory episode, as well as on the uh, Computer America episode where we discussed it. Uh, this, I expressed that I wasn't sure whether there were releases or whether there was a fee for the release. And uh, at least Angelo has confirmed that there are releases, uh, but the initial cost for Jaws is between a thousand and fifteen hundred dollars. So that's where that twelve hundred comes in. And um, yeah, it's uh, it's not cheap, not at oh, all. No, and and then do you have to pay whatever the upgrade fee every year if you want the latest edition? Right. And they do have wow. releases every year, so you're... Yeah, yeah. that's kind of nice yeah. for them. Yeah, it's it's nice that there are releases. It's not so nice if you have to pay for each one separately and continue to fork over the cash. Yeah, use Sonar. It's free. Yeah. And, uh, hey, did you notice um, in Angelo's... Uh, at the end of Angelo's email here, we're now a mainstream podcast. Oh, we are mainstream. Yeah. Uh, don't, don't tell anybody. <laughs> our next email comes from michael who posted on google plus in the podcast on accessibility no mention was made of speech synthesizers following brain damage on four separate occasions i have had very strange set of disabilities i have almost no very short-term memory it is difficult to think of a sentence and then actually type it it is vastly easier to write it using voice recognition software such as I'm doing now. It is the reason that several years ago, as soon as Windows 7 was available, I bought a copy. I am writing this using Windows. That's okay. If it works for you, use it. Hey, Larry, do they have one for Southern slang? Because, boy, I need one. <laughs> yeah, I don't know about that. But... Mm. um you know, a screen reader is a speech synthesizer. It synthesizes speech. I'm thinking that Michael is talking about the way he refers to it at the end, where he's talking about voice recognition. Uh, oh. Yeah. Right. So on Windows, you have things like uh, Dragon Naturally Speaking and that kind of thing, mm-hmm. where you can dictate to the machine and it will type things out. Of course, on Android and iOS phones these days, you can type things in using your voice. I have looked to see if there is something available in uh, voice recognition software for Linux, and it's under development. It's certainly not at the same stage that uh, 
voice recognition is under other operating systems. So it'll be a little bit of time before we have something uh, that's uh, uh, smooth and polished. It's not to say what we have now isn't usable because it is. It just, mm -hmm. you know, in typical early software fashion requires some tweaks and some fiddling to keep it working. And that's typically not something that the average user wants to do. So eventually I'm sure we'll have something. And uh, I'll talk to Jonathan Nato and see if uh, if he's slipped something into uh, Sonar that's not in any of the documentation. And maybe we can talk about it if there is. And if not, maybe I can make a suggestion uh, that uh, he start working with some of these um, voice recognition uh, software folks if he's not already doing that. Yeah. Well, you know, just to just to reiterate, OSX does have this built in. Uh, it reads and it also will respond to your um, your commands. Uh, on my Windows Phone, the uh, with the Cortana, that's mm -hmm. uh, actually very good. Uh, it's actually better than Siri. Uh, on my Android Android Phone, I don't really have any voice. Uh, command uh, available except that Google, you know, when you say, okay, Google, and ask it a question, but being able to do things on, like, uh, Siri and Windows 8 phone, you basically just hit the button and say, call this person or set an alarm for this time. So it's coming in, in more mainstream devices, and I would say... When it finally does come to Linux, that is going to be pretty good because, you know, we build on the shoulders of giants. So it shouldn't be that long. And probably if Johnson has his way, it'll be in sonar before anything else. <laughs> yeah, we'll find out. So let's move on then. Um, All right. Our second last email is from Shoji from Chicago, who asks about photo programs. Hi, Larry and Bill. I really like your podcast. I've been listening to Going Linux podcasts since about the time when Ubuntu 11.04 was released. I always have some questions about Linux, but I've been really busy with work and have not been able to write you. Here is a quick question. There are many programs to edit or organize photos, such as Inkscape, GIMP, GwenView, LibreOffice Draw, and Shotwell. How are they different, and how would you use them differently? This may be more like a topic suggestion than a question. I am looking forward to future episodes. Thank you for your great work. Shoji from Chicago. And yeah, that sounds like a whole episode. <laughs> yeah. But I can give him. I can give him a basic idea. Yeah. If if uh, GIMP is a actual photo editing suite, so it's more like uh, Photoshop, uh, LibreOffice Draw, and Inkscape, or sort of for creation, Inkscape does. Uh, golly, I can't remember the file format. Uh, vector vector. Yeah, it does vector graphics. Uh, GwynView and Shotwell are more of just Viewing your pictures, make minor corrections like to, to the tone of the, uh, or crop it or stuff. And Shotwell, if you just want a general, uh, good program to view your photos without a lot, you know, it has some basic tools, but nothing like the GIMP, that would be your best bet. But this would be a good topic suggestion to talk about. But if you just need to look at your photos, 
then Shotwell would probably serve you pretty well. Yeah. So for organizing Shotwell, for editing, uh, GIMP. yeah, the GIMP and the GIMP will edit, uh, pixel maps, in other words, pixel by pixel sorts of things, whereas Inkscape, it's for creating and drawing, and what vector graphics allows you to do is, rather than have an image that's a series of pixel, pixels on the screen, uh, and when you zoom in, you're able to see those pixels, Inkscape creates vector graphics, which really says this line goes from this point to this point and has this much of a curve. And no matter how far in you zoom or how far out you zoom, you see it as a curve, not a series of pixels, because that's the way it's defined. And that's the way professional artists, illustrators, uh, create these uh, illustrations. They may output them as JPEGs or PNGs or other pixel formatted uh, pictures, but when they create them, they make them in this vector graphic format so that they can make them as big or as small as they need to and make them work. Yeah. All right. All right. You want to read this last one? Sure. Paul in North Texas writes, can I get your general opinion on this site? And the site is listed in our show notes regarding first things to do after installing Linux Mint. I'm a little troubled by 1.2.1 install 4 and 5 level security updates. I've never done that. 1.2.2 updating the kernel seems a little scary to me and 1.6 decreasing swap use. Lastly, 1.9 turns on the firewall. I've not done that either. Could that inhibit Skype or mumble usage at all? If you could address these items alone, it would be great. It would be a great help to me. Thanks, Paul. Okay, so Paul, um, this article provides quite a lengthy set of things to do after installing Linux Mint. We created an article that's on our show notes with 10 things to do after you install Mint 17, and there are other articles out there on 20 things to do and so on. This one is the most extensive that I've seen. Lots of things they want you to do after installing Linux Mint. Let me just say that take each of these, including our article, with a grain of salt. Because Linux Mint in particular is designed so that you can install it and not have to do anything and use it for day-to-day -day use. And it will work just fine without enabling level 4 and 5 security updates. In fact, since it's a long-term support release, there's some argument to be made that you shouldn't do that. Uh, and the reason you shouldn't do that, and the reason that Mint does not enable the installation of level 4 and 5 updates, is because those updates aren't security updates. Those updates are kernel updates and other updates that might break your system. Um, so that's why they don't enable them by default. Now, Ubuntu apparently does, and so you're going to get those updates from Ubuntu unless you block them somehow. So generally speaking, I think they're safe to install, but there's a little higher risk on those than anything else. Now, security patches and security updates, they're going to come to your computer anyway, so you don't have to worry about those things. Uh, again, there's an argument to be made that, well, uh, a new kernel will have additional patches and security updates in it. Yes, and if they're serious enough, I'm sure that the Mint folks will let that go through on a level three. Uh, 
update as well. So, um, or provide some sort of special release that says you must do this in order to make sure that your system is secure. I've never seen that in the years that I've been using Linux, that there was a, a, a kernel update so severe that was normally blocked by Linux Mint that uh, that would uh, require some sort of special effort to install it. So generally speaking, Paul, don't worry about all these articles that tell you to do a whole bunch of things after installing Linux Mint. About the firewall, um, have you had much experience with firewalls, Bill? Usually the, when I'm running uh, Savion or Ubuntu or even Linux Mint, the firewalls are usually turned on. Yeah. Uh, and well, in Savion, you have to actually click a box during installation, and so I, I always click the run. I always run the firewall. Um, you know, you taught me that, and uh, on Windows 8 and uh, I believe OS X, the firewalls are always turned on. So I think running the firewall is just a good policy, and it hasn't affected Skype or browsing or games or anything, to my knowledge. Uh, I can't hurt to run it. It's better to run it than not run it, in my opinion. But that's just me. Right. And if you're going to mess with the firewall settings, then you need to learn how to modify the firewall settings and everything about them. Um, There is the potential that the firewall could block something. And whether the firewall is blocking something or not is easy to test. Just go in and shut off the firewall and see if it works. And if it yeah. if it works when the firewall is off and it doesn't work when the firewall is on, chances are it's the firewall causing the problem. And there are ways to essentially pass that function through the firewall without it uh, uh, affecting it, without the firewall affecting it. Um, and depending on what the function is, you're trying to uh, get the firewall to ignore you will have to enable something or disable something or uh, tweak something on the firewall. And that's where, if you're going to start messing with firewall settings, you better learn about the firewall and what those settings do and how to tweak them and so on. So, uh, again, I go back to my original advice. Whatever Mint comes with out of the box, unless you're willing to spend the time to learn about it and how it works, just leave it alone. It's designed yeah. to work very well, and it's designed to work and keep you safe, and it's designed to work so that the average computer user will be able to use the system without uh, without messing around with it. So uh, that's not to say that all Linux distributions are created equal, because they're not. Some are meant to tweak, uh, but uh, Linux Mint is meant for the average computer user who just wants their computer to work and just wants it to do the things they want it to do uh, and yeah. don't want to become a computer expert. They just want to use it as an appliance. Well, you know, they uh, have really gotten good at the setting it up so you don't have to tweak it. Yeah. I, I don't believe there's been one instance uh, since I think Ubuntu 6 something uh, that I've had to even look at the firewall. They seem to have be getting better at knowing what needs to uh, go through it. I will say but, uh, Linux Mint and Ubuntu have really uh, got it down to a science. I would say Linux Mint probably has a slight lead because they do install other items uh, in their uh, distribution that are not on Ubuntu. So 
I've never had to touch the Linux Mint install at all. The firewall just works. And so unless there's some weird program that, that you have to install that won't work with your firewall, just leave it alone. And, you know, especially if you're a new user, there's more important things to learn. And just let it do its job. And it might not be as secure as if you tweaked every bit of it, but it's, I think, set for a pretty good range of protection. Yep, absolutely. Okay, and I think we've caught up with our emails. So again, for you listeners out there, uh, please keep the emails coming in or the voicemails or send us a voice recorded message in your email. However you want to do it, send us some feedback. We appreciate it. Yes, yes. Do you have an application pick or tip today? Uh, just to heed everything that we talked about today. <laughs> uh, and we've talked about a bunch. Yeah, my thing, uh, my tip, and it's not an application, my tip is basically make sure that you run your updates on your systems. Yes. It's very important. Uh, of uh, everything we've talked about today, I think that's the, the main message to take home here. Yes. Make sure you and get don't all your commands. <laughs> yes, don't paste commands blindly into the terminal without knowing what they do. And you can't get into encrypted drives. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's a lesson learned. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. Anyway, our next episode, Bill, will be assistive technology, advanced episode. Until then, you can go to our website at goinglinux.com for articles and show notes, as well as links to download and subscribe. We are the website for computer users who just want to use Linux to get things done. And if you like, you can participate directly with our friendly and helpful community members by joining the discussion in our Going Links podcast Google Plus community. Until next time, thanks for listening. 73. music provided by Mark Blasco at podcastthemes.com.